spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Fighting to save our favorite shows one tweet at a time. It's episode 214 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and you know that we were one of the first to come out with hashtag save Lucifer. Now, as of me recording this episode, Lucifer has not been saved yet. So if it has, as you're hearing this, then, you know, I'm going to talk about it anyway. So you can hear my thoughts after the fact, and hopefully... That is the case because, yes, I am going to be talking about the season finale, hopefully not the series finale of Lucifer this week. Also going to talk about Timeless and talk about a lot of the same stuff, renewal and saving wise. But how about this? If that wasn't enough, you know, I gave my spoiler filled review of Cobra Kai season one last week. This week, we have Samantha LaRusso herself, Mary Mauser on the show to talk about Cobra Kai even more. So it sounds like we've got a lot to do. Let's get to it. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Matt Kent, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Drag out the long box, fire up the tablet or the laptop, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading. And once again, from the pages of Dark Knight's Metal comes the new Challengers number one from DC Comics, written by Scott Snyder and Aaron Gillespie. Andy Kubert on the pencils and Klaus Jansen on the inks. If that's not a great combination, I don't know what is. And then you throw in Brad Anderson on the colors and Darren Bennett on the letters as well. Now, this is a play off the Challengers of the Unknown, which have been around since the Kirby days, 1957. But a little bit of a spoiler here for if you're not familiar with the group or anything, just a tiny bit so I can actually talk about this book. It follows a group of individuals who have been kind of plucked from the moment of their death to become a team of adventurers. And if that isn't enough, their time is limited and they're kind of tracked by a tattoo on their arm that has like a little hourglass on it. Now, the group has varying members, and if you know anything about the Challengers of the Unknown, there have been others before them, but I gotta say, Trina Alvarez is one of the characters, kind of seems the most interesting. She was a healer in Gotham, did a lot for her community, looked out for her community, and, you know, kind of, I mean, not really a spoiler because I just told you that they, were, they all died, that she kind of died fighting in... What were the events of the pages of Dark Knight's Metal? So, other than that, there's really not much about what exactly they're fighting, what their adventure is going to be, what they're up against, or the background of many of the other characters, other than they've all been dropped here, they don't understand why, they don't really necessarily want to work together or anything like that. So, I mean, it's a pretty typical scenario. I mean, if you find yourself in that situation, you might feel the same way. And then, But it seems like... As we're getting the inner monologue from Trina, she's kind of understanding what's going on and pulling it together. So hopefully we get a little bit more of that from the other characters in later issues. Now, they each have a skill set that has been identified by Prof. And of course, Prof is kind of almost the Zordon of the group, but a little less mentory. He just kind of throws them into the fray. So it's a very interesting dynamic, actually. And, and as I was reading this book, it actually reminded me of a show that we talked about on on the podcast a few times called Extinct. Of course, remember Chad Michael Collins was in there, Victoria Atkin. It's not exactly the same, but there are some similarities 
there to it. It's it's certainly a different end game, and it's certainly a different scenario. But there are some similarities there that made me think of it. And I, and I loved Extinct, so that is absolutely a compliment. The thing is, is the this first issue was very much a okay. Here's the situation. Here's who everybody is on its surface. We don't really know what everybody can do just yet. But here you go, and then they get dropped into their first task, and we don't really get too far into it until we've... And, and we do have an antagonist here, but, I mean, as I'm not stooped, steeped in the lore of the challengers of the unknown, I'm not exactly hurt, sure who it is. If you know, tweet me, at down at 757 I know Scott Snyder listens on occasion, so Scott, if you want to give me some insight there that I can pass along to the listeners, I would appreciate that. So I'm not exactly sure who it is. Shame on me. I'll do my research. But I like to try and take these books on their surface, though. Go in fresh, not a whole lot of information, and just judge it solely on its merits. Now, I mean, we've kind of seen the whole team thrown together thing before, so that's nothing new. But something just feels different about this book, and I love the fact that it's a race against time. And there are consequences if you just decide to say, screw it and not do anything and just kind of leave the group, and that gets addressed in the book as well. So I really like that. It's an interesting concept, and every time they leave the the area that they're in, they're on borrowed time. They're kind of both alive and dead at the same time. So it's really interesting. It's interesting to the point where I'm not sure I can give this a poll just yet because I don't feel like I have enough information to really be psyched about this book, but I'm super interested to find out where the next issue is going to go and how much more the onion is peeled in that issue to maybe give me more of a background on some of these other characters or maybe suck me into the story a little bit more. So I'm going to give this a pickup for now. I could definitely see this moving up to a poll, something that I absolutely have to read every, every time that it comes out. So I'll see where that goes, and I'll try and update you here at least in the next couple of issues anyway. Moving on to IDW and something that you might recognize, Bubba Hotep and the Cosmic Bloodsuckers, number one, written by Joshua Jabkuga, and Tad Galusha does the art, Ryan Hill on the colors, and Tom B. Long on the letters. The cover that you see for the book, if you've Googled it already, is by Baldmar Rivas. Now, I'm going to give myself a well-deserved pat on the back for getting all those names right on the first try, so go me. You know, that's not really my strong suit on this show. Now, again, going to go into a little bit of spoiler territory on the book just so I'm able to talk about it. It is it's it is Elvis. You see Elvis on the cover? That is Elvis, who is alive and well after trading identities with an Elvis impersonator. Now he's kind of fighting strange beings with his bodyguard, Johnny Smack. Now, this was, I believe, a movie with Bruce Campbell at one point. I think it was in the two, early 2000s, maybe two, 2003 or something like that. But... And I will admit I didn't see this that movie, but this is a very different Elvis than you remember. He's older. He's kind of gruff. There's definitely a lot more edge to him. I mean, the the language in this book certainly lends itself to that. And I'm not I'm no prude. I can handle language and some of the stuff, but it feels very Grindhouse. You know, if you watch the Grindhouse movies, that's kind of how it felt to me a little bit. So if you're a big fan of the Grindhouse movies, this is probably your jam for sure. And we get to see, you know, the colonel in this and Richard Nixon still the president. So that kind of sets you in the time period that they're in there. And again, it's another instance where we kind of see a team be put together. You're a little bit more clear on who the team members are and what they can do. But at the same time, I mean, 
it just didn't seem like, we, again, we were given a whole lot. You're kind of given a little bit. I mean, they discover something in one of Elvis's old Kermy movies that kind of gives them a clue as to what's going on. You know who's working for who. You know who's in charge. You know the colonel is not necessarily a guy that you can trust, but that, you know, goes with the Elvis lore anyway, so that shouldn't be any surprise. But, I mean, if you're reading this expecting it to be an Elvis story where you can, you know, just get lost in the nostalgia of loving the king, this is not the book for you because that's not how this book goes at all. This is a very, very different Elvis. But, I mean, fast forward to to Elvis's life, and if he were alive or if he did live past his reported death, you know, how would he be feeling, especially if he's fighting supernatural beings in in real life? How would he be feeling? Would he be the same fun Elvis that you remember from TV and movies and, and music and stuff like that? Or would he be a little bit more gruff and be a little bit more crass? So that's kind of the Elvis that you get in this book. So it's one of those things where I, I will fully admit it's going to be hard for me to rate this book because it was not my cup of tea. It's not even that it was a bad book. I actually thought the art was was pretty good in the book overall. So as far as the art goes, I, I thought that it was done very well. But and especially creatures that we do get to see in this book, I thought were done well. But but story wise and just vibe wise, just wasn't my thing. So for me, this is a drop. But again, if you're a fan of the Grindhouse movies, or if you just like something that's a little bit different and offbeat, then this might be a book that you would definitely enjoy. But so so not for me, but certainly something that that for you, if you're a fan of of, of that kind of thing. I think you'll be into this, so give it a shot if that's something that you're into. It's going to do it for what we're reading this week. Up next, a double dose of Geek Tamin, and we'll start it with the two-hour finale of Timeless, next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Malcolm Barrett from Timeless, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's a double dose of Geek Tamin this week, and we're going to start out kind of in chronological order with this past Sunday's Timeless two-hour season finale. Of course, hopefully not series finale because of that huge cliffhanger, but I will get to that a little bit later on. Spoiler-filled for the Timeless finale from here on out, and it was just wall-to-wall emotions up and down these two hours. It was absolutely incredible. I'm not going to go through every moment because there was a ton of them, especially, you know, the Civil War episode where they went back to the Civil War once again. And, you know, Harriet Tubman has never been more of a badass, I think, ever on television or in movies than Harriet Tubman was on Timeless. And I could just imagine being there. And that's one of the brilliant things that Timeless does. You kind of, through through loving these characters and wanting to stay up with the story, Timeless has a way of making you say, man, I wonder if that that's what it was like if I was there. If only I could have been there to know if that was what it was like. I can't tell you how many times I feel that way when I watch Timeless. And, and the other thing that I've, I'm still loving is this uneasy team dynamic between Lucy and Wyatt and Flynn. Rufus not so much because Rufus has kind of made his peace with Flynn at this point, I think. But still... Anytime it looks like Lucy's getting closer to Flynn and you see how Wyatt reacts, I've really been loving that dynamic. It's uneasy, and I love it. But the main point of this first part of this episode, anyway, was the whole thing that we kind of knew was true but didn't want to be true was that Wyatt's wife, Jessica, was, in fact, Rittenhouse. Now, how that played out, 
I thought was really, really interesting. And what was even more interesting to me was, is that Wyatt holding back from the team. Now, you know, maybe you're mad at Wyatt for that. Maybe you're not. But I loved how the show itself puts itself in our shoes as fans and plays the devil's advocate of, well, if you were in Wyatt's situation and that was your wife that came back to life, how would you do things differently? Would you do things differently? You know, I think that we all asked ourselves that same question, right? Would we do anything any differently or would we do exactly what Wyatt does? And of course, once you can see the end result of what happens, that's where the rage comes in, right? And then making Gia a part of that, I thought was actually really, really interesting to bring her into that fold and then send her and then the, you know, the lifeboat gets sent to Rittenhouse and now Rittenhouse has plans for Gia which we never really do find out what they wanted to do with her. I realized that once the episode is over. And I think that's one of the cliffhangers that we're going to be dealing with if there's a third season, and hopefully there is, because that's an unanswered question that I would really love to get the answer to. Is that what exactly did Rittenhouse want her for, other than, of course, the obvious being her visions, and she can sort of predict what's going to happen, and maybe they wanted to use that to their advantage. Now, I know I'm kind of glossing over, this first part of the episode, because so much happened in the second half when they go to find Gia when she escapes. And first of all, I didn't know Gia had that in her. So bravo, Claudia, for that. I thought that that was an amazing moment for Gia. I mean, you knew she was tough. You knew she could kind of handle herself. But the way she kind of pulls that move on that Rittenhouse dude and kills him, that was that was really impressive and something I did not see coming at all. But then, of course, you know, she's kind of drugged, so she kind of gets lost in time. Rittenhouse tracks her down. They're going to 1888 in Chinatown. And you find out that G has been there for three years. And they do not. she does not want the team to come and get her because this is where Rufus is supposed to die. And, yeah, I, I, I don't want to talk about it. I really, really don't because it's upsetting. It's upsetting to talk about what I don't want to talk about, so I'm going to delay it just a couple of more minutes. Again, we have this dynamic between the team that's uneasy, and it almost you wonder when it's going to cost them, right? Because you feel like it's going to. But the team that it actually ended up costing with the uneasiness that kind of crept up was Rittenhouse because you see that Jess and Emma and the two bigwigs, you know, Lucy's mom and, and great-granddad or granddad, went back to try and find Gia, and Emma basically had had enough. They'd saved Lucy one too many times, and then Lucy kills Lucy's family, basically. Right? The, the two bigwigs in Rittenhouse, and she just guns them down because she's getting impatient about how, you know, this isn't the way we should be running things. Screw family. It doesn't matter. Rittenhouse can be run much better by me. So she takes matters into her own hands. And you sort of knew that Emma had a short fuse, and I always wondered what was keeping her, and maybe it was her relationship with, with Nicholas at the time that did that, but I got to tell you, I did not think that she was going to go and do that, so that was a huge shocker to me, and then Jess, I guess, kind of go, goes along with it, Sir Jessica does because of survival purposes at that point, right? So, and then you see that, you know, Lucy almost gets her in the end. You want her to get Emma so, so badly. And then, of course, you know, once once it starts to break down and Lucy's out of bullets, I mean, you knew it wasn't a fair fight between Lucy 
and Emma Wright. That was not going to end well. And luckily, Flynn got there when he did. And you kind of thought that Flynn would make that shot, though, right? You thought that maybe he would get Emma before she was able to run away. That didn't really happen. So now we know that at least going forward, Emma is the one that we're going to have to deal with in Rittenhouse. Although, will there be any repercussions for what she did? That is another good question. But I guess... (sighs) I can't avoid talking about it any longer. Rufus... Rufus, Rufus. We had Malcolm Barrett on the show not too long ago, right when the season was starting. And I, I had a bad feeling, you know, even with Gia's visions and, and you know that, you know, maybe it won't come true, you tell yourself, right? And then bravo to the writers, by the way, not only of this episode, but for Sean Ryan and Eric Kripke as well, who are running this show, to make us think and suck us in because Gia's vision does not come true and Rufus does get saved. And you think... Oh, thank goodness. Rufus is okay. We can go on with our lives. And then in an innocent moment where it looks like they are getting ready to go home, they exit the saloon. Rufus gets gunned down. And it was devastating. And even then, you think that maybe there's some way that Rufus will be okay. And then you find out really quickly, nope, not so much. Rufus is not okay. And I wasn't okay. I was watching the show with my wife. She wasn't okay. I mean, and and I know that Lucy and Wyatt discussed it. Yeah, Rufus knew the risk. But Rufus seemed like, he always seemed like the innocent one in this, right? The one that was just kind of taken along for the ride. Not that he wasn't an important cog in the team. That's not what I'm trying to say at all. But, you know, Wyatt had his skills, and you knew why Lucy was there from the very beginning, but Rufus from the beginning was the pilot, right? And he evolved so much in what he was able to bring to the team beyond that. Because before, remember the beginning part of it was, was that, you know, Hey, I'm just a pilot. I've got no skills here. I'm going to end up dying. And then they made him so much more than that. But then he also seems like the innocent victim in the end in all this, right? Because, you know, again, He's the pilot. He was the one that was kind of forced into this whole thing and, remember, was being pressured by Rittenhouse in the first place, too. So it just seemed like it wasn't fair that it was Rufus. I'm not saying I wanted to be any other member of the team. I don't want to lose any members of the team, but Rufus, that one hurts really, really bad. And then, you know, of course, they go back, and Gia's resentful, and why why shouldn't she be? She told them not to come back. So you've got Gia. And and then i got to tell you, uh, Connor Mason, that scene between him and Gia in this episode, and especially when he's like, I can't lose you too. And when Connor just wants to save Rufus so badly, just like the rest of the members of the team do. But the moment between him and Gia, I thought was a really great one in this episode. And then the big shocker at the end was, here comes future Wyatt and future Lucy saying, hey, so we going to go save Rufus or what? And that's where we end it. And that is a mother of a cliffhanger, let me tell you. Because, I mean, again, being so attached to Rufus, and I guess because maybe he was the comic relief in the show as well, I think that that kind of lends itself to it. But he was the guy I think I wanted to get catch a break the most. I know that everyone on the team has been through a lot, but it seemed like Rufus, he just needed a win. He needed everything to be okay for him and for him and Gia to have their happily ever after moment. And then that gets ripped away by Rittenhouse and it just makes you sad and angry all at the same time. So if the theme of season three, if one of them will be to 
go save Rufus, and maybe Rittenhouse knows how important Rufus is and wants to prevent that, then I'm all in on that. Not, not that I wouldn't be all in on Timeless anyway, but I'm really all in on that. Let's go save Rufus, and let's save Timeless and renew Timeless and get ourselves a season three. I'm not going to give you a rating for the show because you know how I feel about this show. One of my favorites on TV. It's one of the first things that I watch every week, watch it live, and sometimes even watch it again on my DVR or on Hulu. I love Timeless. I want to see the show brought back. I don't want to have to do the save campaign. I tell you right now, if I find out that this show gets canceled or isn't picked up immediately by another network, this show will be one of the first ones coming out on the hashtag Save Timeless bandwagon. That's going to do it for the first edition of Geek Tim. And up next, we're still going to hashtag Save Lucifer. Let's talk about that finale on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hello, this is Tom Ellis from Lucifer on Fox, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Continuing with our review of season finales that hopefully aren't series finales, part two of this week in Geektainment is the finale for Lucifer Season 3. Spoiler filled from here on out. Yes, I will get to hashtag save Lucifer, hashtag pick up Lucifer in a couple minutes, but I want to talk about the episode first. Basically for me, this was the hunt for Pierce, right? And I think so many emotional moments in this episode... I mean, especially when it starts out where you're still at the crime scene where Charlotte was gunned down. There's so many raw emotions there. And before I even get going, talking about this episode, I mean, stand and applaud wherever you are, unless you're driving because you can't stand and you can't take your hands off the wheel. But Kevin Alejandro was absolutely fantastic in this episode, in this finale. If this is the last episode of Lucifer that we see, and I'm hoping to dad that it isn't, then Kevin Alejandro went out on a major high note. Just the raw emotions from him alone, especially in that scene where he goes to Charlotte's place, you know, finding the waffle iron there and going through all of these things and just absolutely losing it. I mean, I felt like I I was being crushed all over again with Charlotte's death, just watching him. So bravo to Kevin Alejandro. I mean, not that not that I'm not saying bravo to the entire rest of the cast, who is brilliant in this episode. But Kevin Alejandro, to me, stood out in these moments. And especially when he's dealing with Pierce. Because remember, Dan finds out what's going on, or at least kind of has an idea of what he thinks is going on when he finds that file in Charlotte's apartment. And then when he has to take it to everybody, he knows that they're going to think he's insane. But because he's built up such credibility with Chloe, with Lucifer, and even at one point with Ella, who you would think would have been the toughest sell of all on the whole Pierce thing because she was a fan, right? So he manages to convince them that, yeah, Pierce is the one that's responsible for Charlotte's death. And then the race is on at that point. And you see that tense moment between Lucifer and Pierce. And then you see the setup there where you see him. And it looks like Lucifer is going to be arrested, right? And then somehow that doesn't end up happening. And thank goodness that it didn't because I'm not sure how this would go if that did happen. But I also love how they laid the trap for the sinner man, right? Well, Pierce is the sinner man, but the guy that was working with him. And then you try and get him to roll on Pierce, but Pierce has something on him. And then you've got Maze, who was also involved in this whole equation, right? 
And then I got to say, again, if there's a moment where Mays needs to go out, this was it. When she just obliterate. I mean, first of all, you can't keep Mays tied up. That's just a stupid move altogether. You know that's not going to work. So she mows down those dudes, and then she makes it to Linda's office. And remember how tense things were between Linda and Mays throughout at least half the season, right? But in that moment where she's bloodied and beaten and thinks that her friend is in danger, she is there, and the hatchet is buried almost immediately because there are bigger fish to fry at that point. And the emotion there, again, absolutely amazing between Leslie and Brant and Rachel Harris. Loved every second of that. But then let's turn our attention because, I mean, the false moments from Pierce, Tom Welling did a stupendous job making us hate him in this episode. There's really no other way about it knowing that he was responsible for it and still going out and putting on airs in front of everybody was just, I mean, it was blood boiling. Even as a viewer, it made my skin crawl and my blood boil. And again, I don't want to hit every single beat of this episode because you see Pierce try to frame somebody else for Charlotte's murder, try and throw the scent off. But the really, the entire episode is the hunt for Pierce. Let's talk about the ambush, though, because Chloe and Lucifer walk straight into a trap, and you think that maybe, just maybe, this is where it's all going to end for either Chloe or Lucifer, and you kind of get that bad feeling, right, that that's what's going to happen, and you think Chloe is the one that's going to be taken down, and then, again, spoilers here, guys, the wings come out, Lucifer protects Chloe, and that was such an incredible moment. I mean, you know, Lucifer gets his wings and uses them to protect the woman that he loves, who the woman who to that up until that point was still not believing Lucifer when Lucifer is being perfectly upfront like he's been a lot of times with Chloe. Perfectly upfront about who he is and what he is and she just didn't want to believe him. And then he uses his wings to save her. And you think, you know, maybe she's starting to come around. And then, boy, does he use his wings to just kick some serious ass left and right in this episode. The fight between he and Pierce, Kane, whatever you want to call him at this point. The fight between those two, absolutely epic. You think that the Maze's dagger is going to play a big role, and it absolutely does. Because, yep, Kane has finally been... Taken down, he's finally kind of been given what he wants to. So it's a hollow victory, right? Because at one hand, you get the justice that you want because Pierce slash Kane is killed. But at the same time, even though he did want his mark back, he still kind of gets what he wants either way, right? He either gets his mark back or he gets to die, which at one point or another, he wanted both of those things. So it, the, the other frustrating thing is, thing is, yeah, that you're happy that Lucifer wins the day, right? But at the same time, Kane still gets what he wants, and that's the infuriating thing. But then, again, that is the brilliance of how this show is written. And in that moment also, Lucifer gets back his devil face at either the worst possible time or the best possible time, depending on how you want to look at it, because that is when Chloe... Finally, it's confirmed. It's the truth. Everything Lucifer has been saying from the beginning is right. 
He is, in fact, the devil. And that's where we leave it. And that's the frustrating thing because how do you deal with that? It was different when Dr. Linda had to deal with it. Also very difficult, but it's different because they weren't in love with each other. Now, Chloe has to come to terms with not only was she almost about to marry Cain, this evil person. Now she finds out that she's fallen in love with the devil himself. How do you deal with that on its face? But also, how do you deal with the fact that Chloe's got to be thinking, who are these men that I'm picking? You know, you have to take that into consideration at some point too, right? And there are a thousand other storylines. What's going on with the Mena deal? And I know that uh, that Ildry Madrovich and Joe Henderson kind of laid this out as to where they thought season four would go. Not exactly, but kind of the beats of that with uh, comicbook.com and a couple of other places when the whole cancellation thing came down. And we knew that this was going to be a cliffhanger. But there's quite a few because what's going on with the Mena deal? Who is this mystery person that they said that they were going to bring in from Lucifer's past in the upcoming season? All of these things need to be answered. Not to mention, what's going to happen with Dan? We don't know where he goes from here at this point. Ella as well. Is the relationship between Linda and Mays still okay? And where is Mays? And what is her relationship with Lucifer now? There's a thousand questions and a thousand reasons to save this show. Now, you might have seen my video that I did on our Twitter page, at downandnerdy757, for the hashtag Save Lucifer campaign. About 10 minutes after the cancellation came down, I just felt compelled to do something. I was at my house, just put up the cell phone, recorded a quick video, because this is a show that I believe in very strongly. And I know you, the fans, do as well, judging by the, the social media campaigns, the ratings for the finale. Now, maybe I'm talking about this for no reason, because maybe at the point that you're listening to this, the show has been saved or it has been picked up by another network. But there are there is a thousand reasons to pick this up. Now, again, I understand the anger from fans saying, well, screw Fox. We don't want the show on Fox now because of what they did. And not that it seems like there's any room for it, but I'll take Lucifer back any way I can get it, honestly, because I think that if it does come back to Fox, I understand that there's hesitation there, but at least if we know, they say, okay, Here's one more season of Lucifer, because that's what they did with Gotham, right? They did the same exact thing with Gotham. They told us right from the beginning, okay, you're getting a season five, but this is it. This is where it ends. Now you're telling everyone involved in the show, you need to write your conclusion now. If you want that to happen with Lucifer, if you're Fox, and this is just Fox, if Fox wants to do that, then absolutely just tell us from the beginning, this is all we're getting. And then I think as fans would be happy with that. But again, there's a, there's plenty of things you can do. You could shorten the episode order to 13 episodes or 10 episodes. Again, you just tell the writers what they're working with and the showrunners, and they will give us, the fans, the product that we want. I'm confident in this writing team and the team behind the show as far as the showrunners are concerned. I'm confident that no matter what, they're, what the platform they're given, they're going to give us fans what we want. Now, this doesn't mean that this can't happen on another network as well. I could really see Lucifer working on the CW, but they don't seem to have a whole lot of room because they've got a lot of other shows that they have in the pipeline that were either just announced or are still in development. There's a lot going on with the CW, even adding Sunday programming 
I'm not sure that they have a whole lot of room. But again, what about DC Universe, the streaming service that's going to be coming up? They just announced Doom Patrol. They've got another show. Why not add another one in Lucifer? Because it looks like DC Universe is not going to shy away from adding extra programming. And I, I think I said this in the video. It's not like this show costs a lot of money to do. There's really not a ton of effects that go into this show. This is something that you could easily do. And I don't know the cast salaries or anything like that, but it doesn't seem like anyone would really command a huge salary to keep this show going, right? So I think that this is an easy one for a brand new streaming service like DC Universe to pick up. And then look at the slate that you have if you're DC Universe. And it keeps it in the Warner Brothers family, which I'm sure Warner Brothers would like to do as well. But then you look around the other networks. Not going to go to ABC because of the whole ties with Disney. I don't think we're going to go to CBS because, you know, it's a been there, done that thing. I know there are some Warner Brothers shows on CBS, but this is just something I don't see working on CBS. Then you look at NBC Universal, and then you look at something like sci-fi. And again, I know sci-fi jam-packed schedule as well, and they've got a lot of shows upcoming and just, I mean, just from their upfront. But look at how well Krypton has worked for Warner Brothers on sci-fi. And then you've got other shows like Winona Earp that's a perfect compliment. Again, if you're running 10 to 13 episodes, you don't need a huge slot of time to give us Lucifer. All you have to do is slide it in somewhere. Just like, look what ABC did with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is being brought back on a shorter episode order, and they're going to do it in the summer of 2019. And you know, yeah, the, the adage is that summer is where shows go to die, right? But who cares if Lucifer is on in the fall, spring, summer, winter, whatever. As long as we're getting Lucifer, what difference does it make? Lucifer in the summer might be might make sense because it's hot as hell. Why not put Lucifer on in the summer, right? So, I mean, there are options for where this show can go. I think it would work on Hulu. I think it would get lost in the shuffle on Netflix, so I'm not sure that I would want to see it go there. But I'll take Lucifer any way that I can get it because it gave us such great television this year and has from the beginning. But these last couple of episodes were off the charts good. And this is a show that in a sea of shows that don't either deserve to continue or be renewed needs to be renewed. Let's save Lucifer. And hopefully, as I'm saying this, it's already been saved and this is all a moot point. That's going to do it for this week in Geek Tamman. How about some nerd news? Let's take care of that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Cameron Beacon Doba from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time for us to be as upfront as possible with you because it's time for nerd news. The reason I say that is because all the networks, or at least most of them anyway, had their upfronts this week where they talk about the new shows that are coming and show some trailers and make some announcements. Speaking of which, did I or did I not call on this show that Supergirl would be the show that would be moving to Sunday for the CW? Totally called that. And then they're cramming everything else into like Monday and Tuesday, which I actually think is pretty neat. But I want to move on to a couple of the trailers that we saw that were really important from the upfronts. And the first is going to be from Sci-Fi. It's Deadly Class, of course, the adaptation of the Rick Remender book. And Rick Remender is actually in this trailer. It's almost like you know, the Russo brothers are in there. Rick Remender's in there, kind of describing what the series is going to look like and how it's going to be. And Remender says straight up in the trailer that the fans of the book 
are going to be happy. The Image Comics series says it's authentic. So if Rick Remender says it is, then I believe Rick Remender. And the Russo brothers were just kind of gushing and talking about their love for the book and how awesome it was when they first read it. If you're not familiar with the story, it's sort of it's sort of a coming of age story where you follow a group of a secret high school where students kind of learn the deadly arts and they just kind of become the next generation of assassins. So you throw the whole teenagers being teenagers thing in there and, you know, just kind of growing up, but growing up in this environment. And it's certainly, you would think a competitive environment, right? And I'm, and I'm giving you this information to not spoil the book for you either. I don't want to do either because one thing I'm going to go do is I'm going to read deadly class before this show even comes out because I was, this is a book that I've always meant to read anyway. And Seeing the trailer actually made me want to read the book, which to me is kind of the point of this. You want to see your favorite stories adapted, sure. But if you're someone that hasn't read it yet, like myself, seeing a tra- seeing just the trailer made me want to go back and read it. Of course, I'm a fan of Rick Remender anyway. I love almost everything Rick Remender's ever done. So I should have read this by now anyway, but seeing the trailer certainly makes me want to. Because there was plenty of action, there was plenty of, you could kind of see teenagers being teenagers sort of thing. There's a dark quality to it because there, there's a little bit of a horror element in there. Apparently, again, you don't really get to see that a whole lot in the in the trailer. And of course, it's an action adventure, throw an action adventure in there. But it, it's just an interesting thought to me. You know, you create a school for something like this. And then what do you expect is going to happen? You, you can only imagine any number of things will. So... If you're a fan of the book, it looks like this is going to be a true ad- adaptation. I wouldn't say shot for shot, but I would say pretty pretty much the things that you're going to expect to see in this show, according to Rick Remender, you're probably going to see. I mean, just look what Sci-Fi was able to do with Happy. And they did that extremely well. I mean, you want to talk about absolutely being true to the story and what it was. Happy was definitely that. And it was not a shot shot for shot of the comic. At least I didn't think it was anyway. I certainly thought there were some differences there. And it was cast well. So again, I have faith in sci-fi to bring Deadly Class in 2019 and do it well. So now all we can do is wait and see. But I am pumped for this. Another one that I did, actually didn't expect to get a trailer for the upfronts was the Charmed reboot from the CW. And I say trailer. It was almost four minutes long first look. And of course we get to see... Mel and Maggie sort of dealing with the death of their mother. And then Macy shows up saying that she's their sister. And, you know, it would have been really easy, right, to start this show off where all the sisters are together, they all get along, and we're just going to push right into the story of them being the charmed ones, right? No, 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 no. First of all, Mel and Maggie are fighting because they're both dealing with the death of their mother differently. And then you have this girl just show up and say that she's your sister, especially after everything that happened with their mom, right? Now, I guess there's two schools of thought. You either welcome her with open arms because you're thinking, oh, we've lost one member of our family and we've gained another. It's so good to have her here. Or it's the, you know, she just rolls up after our mom dies and says she's our sister. How do we know that she's the truth? She's telling the truth. And they decide to go the latter route, which I think is Kind of real, realistic approach. I mean, maybe you had the other approach. Maybe you would have thought differently the first way I've described it. But I think that this is a true-to-life thing. And, and you see that sort of play out in the trust issues that they have with each other, at least in the early going in this trailer. And then you see Harry show up, 
who looks like Harry's the white lighter, you know, tells them that they're witches and that they're capable of amazing things, but there's also some dangers involved in it. And another thing that I liked about this trailer is that the sisters do not accept this power and this way of life right away. They don't just dive right into it and say, oh, cool, I can't believe I'm a witch. Let's go find some demons and start vanquishing some folks. No, 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 no. They say, I don't want any part of this. You can take your book of shadows and go away sort of thing. So I like the vibe of this. I know that there's haters. I know that it's kind of nothing like the original Charmed. I mean, they don't understand their powers either right away, and I think that was a cool thing that they did. I actually think this not feeling like the original Charmed is exactly what they needed to do. There's certain magic that you can't recreate, pun intended, absolutely 100% intended. You cannot just keep recreating shows. There's reboots all over the place. I mean, Magnum P.I. and Murphy Brown are coming back, for God's sakes. I mean, think about that for a second. All we do now is bring stuff back. And I'm not and I'm not judging and I'm not saying that we shouldn't. But what I'm saying is if you're going to bring it back, give me the spirit of the show. Pun intended once again. Give me the spirit of the show, but at the same time, give me a fresh take. Give me something different. Give me something that's not going to make me just want to go back and watch my old charmed DVD sets, which by the way, if you don't like this, you can absolutely do. You don't have to bash the show up and down on Twitter before you've even seen an episode. I know you feel like you can get a lot from a trailer. This is one trailer. I haven't even seen an episode yet. So can we please give this a chance before we start ripping it to shreds on social media? I actually think that it's pretty neat. I like the Harry character especially. Very, very charming. It seems like the sisters have a good dynamic as well. So the Charmed reboot, let's give it a shot because I think that this one actually has a chance to work out. The CW was not done there, though, because we got a bombshell from Entertainment Weekly, and that is that Batwoman is going to be coming to the Arrowverse for the big crossover that's going to be happening in December from all of the shows. Stephen Amell confirmed this to Entertainment Weekly. If that's not enough, Gotham City itself will be debuting in the Arrowverse. And now here's my thing. Let, let me get to, I'll get to Batwoman in a second. Just as Gotham is getting ready to end and air its final season, now we're all of a sudden going to introduce Gotham City into the Arrowverse. You know, once thought sacred ground for Fox, right? You kind of thought that, you know, with Fox, they have the rights to Batman and all this other stuff, so you were never going to see any of that stuff. And there was only certain characters that, that could be used in the Arrowverse. Of course, we found that out at San Diego Comic-Con. We were talking to the Arrow producers in the press room. So they've been able to use Ra's al, al Ghul and some other characters. And now, all of a sudden, Gotham City is involved. Batwoman is involved. So I, you're, we're creeping slowly but surely into seeing more Bat Family characters from the hero side anyway on the CW and in the Arrowverse. And I think Batwoman, and I think I brought this up in a past show as well. I can't be sure. I mean, if you want to comb through the archives or if you listen every week and you want to find it for me, I would appreciate that. At Down and Dirty 757 on Twitter. You can also comment on SoundCloud as well. And I think that this is a perfect character to bring in. I mean, she works. She's got that military background. That and, you know, Maybe you bring her dad into the fold a little bit as well. That would certainly create an interesting dynamic and we don't really know what the crossover is going to be about yet but of course it seems like it's going to have something to do 
with Gotham City and is that a hint to what kind of a villain we're going to be dealing with as well? Maybe am I finally going to get my Hush storyline at some point? Maybe. And, and maybe there's going to be information after I've recorded this segment that's going to come out about this. But I think that this is just interesting. I hope that they don't kind of push a relationship between her and Sarah Lance, though, because I, I think that, you know, that's an easy thing that you could absolutely do. But, I mean, surprise me. Give me something a little bit different. Give me a little bit more depth. You could certainly do that. I wouldn't be mad about it. It would certainly, I guess, on its surface make sense. Or, But I don't think you want to push that particular aspect. I think you just let Batwoman, that character, develop. Let her be a badass a little bit and show us the depth of her character beyond just being a badass and, and let the relationship stuff fall where it may and how much more are we going to see her past the crossover in the Arrowverse because remember we saw the Ray in the crossover and of course the Ray has an animated series but I haven't seen the Ray since so that, that that's another thing to consider now here's who you, I know you want me to say who I think is going to play Batwoman and normally I would say well you know I don't know what kind of age they're going for yada 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 I'm going to skip right to the right to the chase okay Because we talked about Timeless earlier on in the show. What about Annie Wershing, who plays Emma on Timeless, the kind of the antagonist? I know maybe I'm I know Timeless fans are gonna say, well, aren't they gonna need her for next season of Timeless when the show gets renewed? Because we totally know it's going to, and we're not gonna give up hope, sort of thing. Sure, I understand that, but that doesn't mean that she can't do this, especially if it's for the crossover. We don't know when the filming schedules for these two things are. She could certainly film Timeless and film an Arrow crossover at the same time, you would think, as Batwoman. I mean, she's she's certainly had the red hair thing going for her before. She certainly has some fighting skills. She might be a little bit on the older side of what they might be looking for from Batwoman, but we don't know how old the Batwoman character is in this iteration. If they're going to go for a little bit younger of an actress, I'm sure that you, you could go for a name that's not necessarily... On the tip of your tongue, there's plenty of red-headed actresses. And there's also plenty of actresses who could friggin' dye their hair red, too. I mean, we can't rule that out entirely. Plus, she could also wear a wig. She doesn't necessarily have to be a redhead. I know that's going to make Batwoman fans' heads explode, but you don't absolutely need her to be a redhead. I think that you want her to be a redhead. I think that that certainly makes more sense than not. So let's focus on that and make that a thing. But if it's not a thing, I'm not going to scream from the rooftops that it should be a thing. I, I just can't wait for more details to come out. I can't wait for that first shot of the Batwoman suit. Just to see the Bat emblem on an Arrow show, I think is going to be a great step in the right direction. Finally, we are not done with DC Comics because yet another network is going to be jumping into the fray. According to The Hollywood Reporter, Epics is going to be bringing us a prequel series called Pennyworth that will focus on, yes, your favorite butler, Alfred. It is a 10-episode, straight-to-series order, and look at Bruno Heller. Finding out that this is the final season of Gotham, and now he's going to be working on this for Epics, working on the Pennyworth series. Now, this is not a Gotham spinoff. This is not something that Sean Pertwee is going to be involved in. I know I love Sean Pertwee as, as, as Alfred, too. I thought he did a great job. But it just wouldn't make sense because it just would feel like a Gotham prequel, even if it wasn't. Now, as far as where the show is going to be going, it's going to be kind of Alfred's origin as a former British SAS soldier who forms a secret company and goes to work for Thomas Wayne. So, of course, you know, one would think we're probably going to see Thomas Wayne in this series as well. 
I've said before, kind of in a joking way, that Alfred could carry his own series. I absolutely think that this is something that is interesting, and it's something that could be explored, especially in a 10-episode setting. You don't need to give me 20 episodes of this. Give me 10, and let's see how it goes, and let's see what kind of a story that could be put together. Plus, you put it on Epics, that's you know, paid cable TV, that's kind of like an HBO type network. So maybe you can push the envelope a little bit in this in this series as well. You know, I'm sure that language won't be a problem either. So I'm not saying Alfred's going to go out there and drop F-bombs every show. But, you know, that means, you know, you're not really limited in what you can do when you're on a network like Epics. So, and, and Epics is pretty readily available. I mean, they even have their own app and everything. If you're thinking, what's Epics and how do I get it? I mean, you could certainly get a standalone app as well. So I'm kind of I'm kind of digging the fact that they're doing this. And I think that if there's a character I almost never thought would actually get a series like this, it was Alfred. And I think it's so cool that they did. And it shows that they're not afraid to try something different. So for me, it's a why not thing. I mean, even if it's 10 episodes and it doesn't work out, at least it's happening and they gave it a shot. I say let's do this and see how it goes. That's going to do it for Nerd News this week. Up next, going to go back to the Cobra Kai dojo and talk about the LaRusso family with Mary Mauser, who played Samantha. She's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, guys. This is Dachin Charbonneau, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I am sure that you've already binge-watched Cobra Kai on YouTube Red multiple times. That's one of the reasons we had to bring Samantha LaRusso herself on this week. It's Mary Mauser. Mary, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing great. Now, Mary, it's been over 30 years since the original Karate Kid movie, and usually kind of waiting that long to do a sequel doesn't always work out. So when you read the script, did you kind of know that Cobra Kai was going to be the exception to that rule? I don't. I think everyone kind of had a feeling in their gut. Um but I was saying, like, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm like, very superstitious. So I'm one of those, like, I don't want to say anything till I know. I don't want to think anything just in case. But, no, I think we all kind of knew that this one was special and it was different. And um, I think everybody was really excited. Nobody – I don't remember feeling nervous. I remember feeling very excited for people to see it. And I guess nervous what the fans of the classic movies would think and hoping that it went over well. But I, I think we all had a feeling in our gut that it was going to be good. One of the things I thought it was really interesting watching Sam was kind of her struggle to decide who she really wanted to be throughout the season. So do you feel like that made her very relatable, even coming from a wealthy family? I mean, absolutely. I, that's something that I definitely related to. Um, it's something that made me feel very much at home with Samantha was the fact that, like, figuring that out pretty universal. I don't know anyone who hasn't, you know, and even the people who were like, oh, I know I would never be a bully. Like, Samantha never set out to be a bully, and I don't think she necessarily was one in herself, but I think she hung out with kids that she shouldn't have necessarily been hanging out with if, you know, to uphold the image of herself that I think she really wanted to be. Um, but I think all of that got lost in the shuffle, you know, as part of the just wanting to fit in, just wanting to feel like you belong, just just wanting to not be the nerdy kid for once and wanting to be part of the cool kid group and then like kind of having to realize what it is to be nerdy and that it can be really cool to be the nerdy kid mm -hmm. and uh and you can be really amazing people through being one of the quote-unquote outcasts and um yeah I definitely I related to that struggle myself very strongly it's funny you talk about bullying because that kind of leads me into my next question I mean the original movie tack tackled bullying in a time where it wasn't really as recognized of an issue 
as it is now. So how do you feel like this show dealt with the problem of bullying as it's seen today? I think that was something they definitely faced going into this was the fact that bullying itself has changed so much from the time of the original Karate Kid movies to now is it's, it's a completely different beast. It's, um, you know, now there's cyberbullying for one thing. For another thing, I mean, I feel like when you watch old movies, it's like the guy, you know, goes like, hey, your shirt looks not cool. And it's like, oh, no, it's like kids are mean. I don't know if they just didn't show that in movies back then or if kids weren't as mean back then, but kids are mean. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's it's something like I feel like that they have to to deal with and to tackle is how people fall into Cobra Kai, what kind of person is looking for solace in inflicting pain or at least, you know what I mean? And like in that aspect, I guess, and and kind of what that would be like for kids today, because I I mean, I identified every one of the characters in the show. I was like, oh, I know a kid like that from high school. Oh, I know a kid like that from high school. So I feel like they definitely did a great job of encompassing more of like today's bullying and today's issues. Um, But kind of like cool because they threw in that aspect of like, you know, how Johnny responds to all of that. So it's like how, how I guess Gen Z kids or, gen x or i don't even know what what year we're in anymore but like you know how like those kids face somebody from who was like the classic 80s bully absolutely now one of my favorite scenes in the entire series was how sam dealt with kyler at the movie when he was kind of trying to push things too far how empowering was that was that scene for you and do you feel like that was kind of a turning point for samantha in the season I definitely do. I remember that was incredibly exciting. I mean, the move that we did was like a very modified and newer version of Wax On, Wax Off, which was so exciting to learn and just so like I was geeking out majorly. Um, but I mean, on, on top of that, just like for her character, I feel like it definitely was, um, you know, a turning point in my opinion and in my mind. And it was something that it felt very cool, very I don't know how to say it. Um, it's like tough to do um, and exciting in the sense that it's like, I, I, I hoped that if 15 year old me was watching that, I would be like, yeah, go you. I'm going to pull that next time. Like watch out. I'm like, I've got moves. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. There you go. A girl kind of take that on and not, not be in that in a victim role, but rather to be in the, like she's let this go on too long and she's, she's standing up for herself. Definitely. And it was kind of after that point we see Miguel start to come into the picture and then later on Robbie as well. So am I kind of sensing a bit of a love triangle here or is there more to it than that? I I mean, I don't really know what's around the corner for season two, but I definitely know that uh, I think there is there is a there's a quite a there's a setup there. There's something going on there that I think, um, you know, and it's funny because like I wasn't expecting as strong of reactions as I got people on Instagram, on Twitter, like they're messaging me. They're like, you need to get back with Miguel. Like Samantha needs to be with Miguel. <laughs> but it's so interesting because when I watched it, I was like, in my mind, I was like, oh, that's done. Like Miguel and Samantha are broken up. But now mm-hmm. looking at it from like a different perspective, from an outsider's perspective, I'm like, oh, okay. I see what's going on here. Like there's definitely like something between the three of them. Talking to Mary Mauser, of course, plays play Samantha LaRusso on Cobra Kai, which you can binge watch on YouTube Red right now. Now, Mary, kind of switching gears a little bit, it seems like Sam has a very special relationship with her dad, but at the same time, she also seems to kind of keep him at a distance as well. So how would you characterize their relationship? I think she's been daddy's little girl since she was very little. 
And I think, you know, she, she was the firstborn. She got all that karate training, you know, and I think they had that very special relationship for a long time. But just like most teens and kids do, I think as she started to try and find herself, she has to figure out who she wants to be. And that means going further and further away from what she thinks people want her to be. And I think, you know, she loves her dad and she wants to, she wants him to see her kind of a certain way as like now Miss, you know, grown up who can like take care of herself. And I think she's kind of trying to establish that role. But at the end of the day, I think um, something that I, I know in my version of Samantha is that, you know, I'm sure she talked to her about dad about all of it, about all of the, the stuff that went on, you know, right before that, that, uh, the, the tournament episode like they have mm-hmm. a little moment they're lounging on the couch and and I really like felt like that was a moment of just like of her coming back to like she might not be able to verbalize everything that's going on with herself to her dad but her dad is still like you know that's that's the place she goes to when she needs him I wanted to talk about something that I saw on your Twitter feed recently because it seems like some fans are campaigning for you to be the next Batgirl so now are you a fan of the <laughs> character and are there any other heroes that you'd kind of love to play I <laughs> I, I am a fan of the character. I mean, I'm a fan of all things Bat-related. Um, but uh, I, I was just like, oh, that'd be so cool. And then now people are taking it like, super seriously. So I'm like, oh, cool. Like, if we can actually make that happen, you guys, you know, you take that over. I'll just sit back here and chill. Um, no, like, I, I, I would love to play a superhero character. And I think that's something I got a little taste of with Samantha. Is she's, a, she's, she's She kicks a lot of butt. And I think that's pretty cool. Um, I would love to play a superhero character. I don't know who exactly. I would say Batgirl because, like I said, I love that. But I know I love, like, Black Widow from the Avengers. Like, she's one of my, like, top all-time favorites. I mean, you showed off the skills. So, I mean, if, I, if Twitter's a powerful thing, Mary. <laughs> Fingers crossed, then. Let's see where that goes. There you go. Now, speak, we were talking about the original Karate Kid fans a little bit earlier. So I want to touch on that a little bit because there's kind of a debate that Karate Kid fans have had for years. I think it's crazy, but I wanted to get your take on it. And it was actually addressed in this first season as well. Is Daniel LaRusso the real villain of the original Karate Kid movies? Oh, my goodness. All right. I have heard this, from, especially from Sholo, because, you know, Sholo, obviously, he's seen Cobra Kai. Right. So all throughout filming, any opportunity he got, he'd be like, he'd be like so uh, you remember that time when, uh, when Daniel bullied Johnny? I'm like, oh, shut up. Like, <laughs> not- I'm I'm a LaRusso at this point, right? Like I'm in the family now, so in my mind, of course, there's there's no question who the bully is. And honestly, from a viewer's perspective, I'm on the side of Daniel. We're all like teenagers. We all make mistakes in the mm-hmm. way that we handle situations, and we all make you know we all make decisions that are snap decisions, that are emotional decisions, that maybe come from the right place but aren't executed well. So I'm sure there are plenty of moments there where. He needed a talking to, but it definitely, I still believe that Johnny was the bully and, and Daniel was, you know, standing up for himself in a way. Absolutely. See, I've been team LaRusso from the beginning, but I needed to hear it from you, Mary. <laughs> All right. Good. good. <laughs> one of the, one of the things I loved about the season was the last two episodes. I thought they were so amazing and it was an amazing end to the first season and one of the reasons for that is we get to see Samantha show off some of her skills in the dojo there at the end so now that the show's coming back for a second season could we actually see Sam join Miyagi-Do Karate? You guys have uh, I've got my fingers crossed just as hard as anyone else I've been uh, tugging on every sleeve I can and saying hey can I do more karate hey can I do more karate and I'm sure by the end of the season they were 
by the end of the season when that last script came out and everybody had it in their hands and I hadn't read it yet, they were like, you're going to be happy. Uh, like, you're going to be very excited. So, I mean, I have my fingers crossed just like everybody else, but um, i got a feeling in my gut I might get to do some, at least some more, some more cool things like that. I don't know about where her story is going to take her team-wise, but at least I might get to get a little more involved in the action. I know it's still really early, but other than that, what else do you hope to see more of in season two that we really didn't get a chance to see a lot of in season one? Um, I mean, I'm I'm really interested in in seeing where that the the triangle aspect of that goes. I'm really interested to see what's next for Robbie's character um, because I feel like that was like that's such like an, the end of that episode, which I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't you know seen it. But at right. the same time, hopefully people have seen it by now. Um, that last like moment between him and Daniel and what that door, that literal and metaphorical door being opened means like I'm really excited for that and for what that means with Samantha's life too of having her dad back in the dojo and you know like all that I don't know I'm excited about that and um and I'm I'm excited to see what the Cobra Kai aspect goes into I'm I would hope that Samantha gets to kind of maybe maybe get a little vengeance you know Mm -hmm. and um and so I'm 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 very excited to see where the karate aspects take it and then also where that for Samantha especially like where that relationship goes If you haven't seen Cobra Kai yet on YouTube Red, what are you waiting for? Season 1, you can binge watch it right now on YouTube Red. Season 2 already announced coming in 2019. I'm sure we'll be seeing a lot more Samantha LaRusso. It's Mary Mouser. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thanks so much for having me. Anytime I get to talk about a show like Cobra Kai on YouTube Red, I'm going to do that and love chatting with Mary Mauser about Samantha LaRusso and her kind of giving us what she'd like to see in season two and and maybe the next Batgirl. Who knows? I mean, you want to keep that social media campaign going. I'm not going to stop you. She certainly flashed some skills in the show and I mean, that would be really cool if she got a chance to do that. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks for Murray Mauser to come, for coming on and talking about Cobra Kai, which you can stream right now on YouTube Red. You can also keep streaming us at downandnerdypodcast.com. Just keep listening to the next episode and binge listen whenever you get a chance. You can also download the show on there. You can also find a way to subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes or Google Play Music. Tune in wherever you like to listen and find us on social media as well. Facebook.com slash Down and Nerdy and at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and on Instagram. With that being said, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.